Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. This week, my guest is Dave Malloy. Uh, Dave is a Broadway composer, and I have to tell you, uh, as, a, as a critic, uh, I try to be a little reserved about things. But if there's something I'm going to start evangelizing about to the world, it's almost always a Broadway musical. I don't know what that is. I don't know what part of my brain that, that just sets off. But since I was a very small child, uh, I, I've loved sort of the drama and excitement of the musical theater. And Dave showed Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812, which has had a long and interesting history. It started out way off Broadway in a, in a tent down in the lower Manhattan somewhere, and then it moved to just off Broadway, again in a tent, and now it's actually on Broadway. It's a musical that adapts a small portion of the book War and Peace. It's a lot of it's done in electro pop. It's a, it's a really strange show, but it's beautiful and heartbreaking and gorgeous and I love it and I'm glad that I'm going to get to talk to Dave about it. So let's go listen to that. Dave, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So I I have seen the show twice now mm. and the second time I saw it, I went with my friend Laura and we were reading the playbill at intermission. And she was reading your bio and she said, everything he does sounds like a series of escalating dares. <laughs> and, uh, you really, you've done, you've done, obviously, this show's based on a snippet of War and Peace. Uh, you've done a show about Rasputin. You've done, you're working on projects about Moby Dick, uh, Shakespeare's Henry plays. I guess what I'm wondering is not necessarily where your ideas come from, but a lot of people are scared away from those big ideas. You seem to run toward them. I'm wondering oh, where that impulse comes from. I mean, I, I really think it comes from just, uh, you know, what in college I was an English and music double major. And so I've just always had just a profound love of literature. And, and uh, so, you know, when my life went more in a musical, theatrical direction, I never kind of let go of my love of like English and of like, you know, reading literature and like studying literature. And I feel like for me, making a play about something is the way I study it. So mm -hmm. if I want to like, if I love, if I read War and Peace and love War and Peace and want to like get inside of War and Peace, the way I'm going to do that is to write, you know, write a show about it. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with like Moby Dick is what I'm working on right now. Mm -hmm. um, I do joke that, yeah, like the escalating dares, <laughs> I have been joking that. Uh, this is part of my Impossible Novels trilogy. So I'll have War and Peace first, then Moby Dick. And then when I'm like 50 years old, I'm going to start working on Ulysses. Okay. Which will be the culmination. <laughs> well, I guess it, the, the idea for this show, my understanding from reading an old blog post of yours, came from you were working on a cruise ship or something like this. How did this pop into your head? How did it come to you to like, I'm going to adapt, not just War and Peace, but this mm -hmm. specific section of War and Peace? It was really crazy. I mean, it was really an epiphany, like at, at the moment of reading it. It wasn't like an idea that I came to like many, many years later. It was like, as I was reading that section and yeah, I was, I was on a cruise ship like late at night in my, in my little bunk bed at like probably four or 5 AM or something. And when I finished this section and this section of, you know, Pierre seeing the comet and tears are streaming down his face and tears were streaming down my face. And yeah, I had such an epiphany at that moment that that 70 page section I had just read, which is also very much like kind of bookends and he makes it a discrete section of, of the novel, um, that it just felt like a perfect musical. And at that time, I wasn't even really a musical theater writer. I had done like a little bit of theater, but like mostly doing like really weird experimental music kind of in the background of some very strange shows. Um, but I'd kind of had always had this love of musical theater, but I hadn't really taken the plunge and done it myself. So I kind of filed the idea way in the back of my mind. 
Um, and then years later, when this theater, Ars Nova, commissioned me to make a piece, I like sheepishly presented that <laughs> idea to them, fully expecting them to shoot it down and say, let's do something with maybe only two people in it, you know, <laughs> something more manageable for our 90-seat theater. Yeah. Um, but no, they, they went for it. Well, you said that you study literature through writing shows about it, writing about it. What have you sort of learned about War and Peace? And you've been invested in this world now for many years. What have you realized about it that you didn't know when you started reading it? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, really, honestly, for me, the most fascinating thing has been studying Tolstoy more and just studying his long and crazy life, mm. <laughs> like in kind of the the arc that he went through. Um, like when he wrote War and Peace, like he very much knew that he was writing something that wasn't really a novel. It was just like this very bizarre <laughs> and gigantic tome that, you know, had a novel in it, but it also had like a military history and it also had a lot of these like theories of history. And so it was just this very bizarre piece. So that really appeals to me about him, like his mm -hmm. desire to do that. But then later in his life, he went really uh, off the rails and like in, in amazing, beautiful ways and kind of disowned all of his writing and like went, you know, totally away from worldly possessions and, you know, became a famously became a, a, a devout celibate. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and eventually, like, left his, you know, family home in the middle – his home in the middle of the night because he just, like, couldn't deal with all the business matters anymore. And so, so yeah, it's been really fascinating. And I actually got to visit his estate, Yasnaya Polyana, uh, in Russia last year, and it's pretty magical and amazing. And mm -hmm. it has, like, all of his books. He read, like – you know, he read, like, t or 12 or 13 languages, and so he has – his entire library is there, and in all the mar margins, he has his notes, and he always took his notes in the language of the book he was oh, reading, no. which is amazing. Um, yeah, so just kind of getting inside of his head has been wonderful. And then seeing how that reflects in War and Peace, and especially with Pierre's journey. Like, Pierre is very much the stand-in for Tolstoy, and Tolstoy's kind of search for meaning in his life. Well, Pierre's the stand-in for Tolstoy. You've also, in the original production of this, you cast yourself as Pierre. Hi. And <laughs> as someone who is in the... In his 30s, dealing with a lot of these things, obviously, I recognize a lot of myself in Pierre. Yeah, yeah. What is it about that character that just makes him so indelible for so many people? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I most, yeah, relate to the, his his social awkwardness, which I still feel on a profound level every day of my life. Um, you know, and, and for Pierre, is very much kind of thrust into this society that he just is not built for. You know, he, he, he uh, inherits a large sum of money. Um, you know, very unexpectedly and suddenly is, you know, they're dining and hobnobbing with all the aristocracy of, of Moscow and he just doesn't fit in. And he like very much is a, you know, kind of a clown figure and that he really tries to fit in and he smiles and laughs and buys everyone drinks and drinks a lot himself. Um, but, you know, at the heart of him, there's just like this deep, deep sorrow and deep confusion about what is going on in the world, you know, mm -hmm. and especially, you know, at that time historically, and obviously for us at this time historically, there's a lot of confusion about what's going on in the world and how can people be acting this way, you know, mm -hmm. when you recognize what's in yourself. And mm -hmm. for him, you know, he it's very much a religious kind of spirit, spiritual journey that he goes on. Mm -hmm. um, you also, you know, Tolstoy, for many sections of this work, is your lyricist. You are literally setting the words of, I don't know which translation you use, mm -hmm. but one of the, the translations yeah. uh, of War and Peace to music. That seems daunting to me, and I'm wondering, how did that work, I guess, going from I have these words and I need to find music to fit them? Totally. Yeah, I mean, that was always, that was a, a you know, in terms of 
constantly daring myself. <laughs> like, I think that was actually one of the very early concepts for the show that I always wanted to hold on to was not to just put the story on the stage, but to really put Tolstoy's voice on the stage. Because mm -hmm. Tolstoy's voice is such a unique, uh, yeah, he just has such a unique writing style. And so much of his characterization comes from his, like, microprocessing of all these tiny, in, in, tiny moments in people's lives and, like, how they're thinking about those moments. Um, so, so to me, it was like such a it was such a gift to have all this text like just there waiting for me. And his language is just even in translation, his language is just so incredible. And so for me, yeah, that was never really a problem. It was always a kind of a, a gift. And I could I always knew if I got stuck in a song, I could go back to the original book and like look for something in there. Mm. Um, but then like yeah, I guess what I really delight in is like reading his text and then like finding you know, the four-word phrase that, oh, like, that's a pop song. Like, that's the hook of a pop song. You know, like, Sonia's song is a, the best example, I think, of that. Like, that literally is just a paragraph in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, but that line, I will stand in the dark for you, I think it's I will stand in the dark for her, but I will stand in the dark is uh, is right there in the Tolstoy. And it's just like, oh, my God, that's a perfect hook for, like, this, you know, beautiful indie, indie pop song. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, you're talking about uh, sort of this idea of meshing pop music with, uh, Broadway music. And one of the things when Hamilton was all anybody was talking about was, you know, this is not hip hop. You know, mm. it's kind of some weird in between state of mm. hip hop and Broadway. And that always also happens with when you do a rock show, when you do a pop show. I'm wondering, how do you find those those gray areas between the traditional Broadway musical and and other genres of music? And how do you get them to blend? So they're recognizably both, but also not entirely either. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like I, I'm very disinterested in like what I would what I would think of as like the typical Broadway mm -hmm. sound um, and like specifically, I mean, like the typical Broadway sound of the last 20 years or so. Um, so for me, for me, it's not even just about like rock and pop music. It's really about every kind of music. It's mm -hmm. like musical theater is just about telling theater, telling stories through music. And so any kind of music should be available to that. So I draw on, you know, electronic music and jazz and classical music and indie rock and all these things. Um, and I feel like for me, like in terms of like how how it's recognizable as musical theater, like a lot of that is in the lyrics and in the mm -hmm. storytelling, you know, musical theater songs obviously have to tell a story and like they have more of an arc than a typical pop song will have. Um, but at the same time, I feel like, I mean, again, like Sonia's song, I wrote very deliberately trying to, you know, kind of put like a little jewel of a, of a pop song inside of this show that, you know, functions in both ways, as, right. as you said. Yeah, that it functions in the arc of the overall story, but it's also a nice self-contained little four minute moment. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about your sort of your, your history of, of music in some ways, like what, brought you to this moment? Like, what were your influences? Uh, because I, I did go back and read some of your old blog entries. And okay. you were talking about, <laughs> you were talking about, like, yeah. finding a way to bring, uh, finding, like, letting your sound be influenced as a Broadway composer by things outside of Broadway. And I'm wondering, like, who were, when you were growing up, who were the bands, who were the artists who made you just sit up and say, oh, my God, I want to do that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've had a pretty... Um, yeah, pretty zigzaggy musical upbringing, which I think has really served me in the end. Um, so I grew up in the 80s, so I was listening to 80s pop music. Prince was my absolute favorite and probably to this day still is my ultimate musical hero. Um, but I was also listening to like, you know, 60s and 70s rock. Then my sister and I choreographed, you know, dances to Beatles songs and that kind of thing. 
Um, so that was like the foundation. And then I went to high school and became obsessed with jazz. And I became a jazz pianist. And so then I was listening to, you know, Keith Jarrett and Thelonious Monk and Bill Evans and, you know, Coltrane and Miles Davis and just as much jazz as I could get my hands on. Um, and, and especially like electric jazz as well, like what Miles started doing in the 60s and 70s. Like I still love that stuff. And as far as like crossing genres and mixing genres, like Bitches Brew is still like one of my favorite albums of all time. Then I went to classical world when I went to college. Like, I started studying classical music and, like, writing symphonic music and studying piano there. So then it was all, you know, Bartok and Messiaen and, and Shostakovich and Chopin. Uh, and then after that, I graduated and I moved to San Francisco and I worked at this independent record store called Amoeba Music. Mm, yeah, and sure. that, I actually feel like, was maybe the most profound musical education I've had um, because that store, they have experts in every single field working at that store. So they have, like, the reggae guy who just knows everything about reggae. They have the drum and bass guy who knows everything about drum and bass. And as an employee there, you could just, like, check out UCDs, <clears throat> you know, like it was a library. So I would just go to the reggae guy and just go, hey, I want to learn everything about reggae. Give me, like, the 20 best reggae CDs ever made. And he would do that. <laughs> and then I would just go home and listen to them. And so that was a profound experience in terms of opening my horizons. And I was listening to a lot of experimental music then and a lot of electronic music then and kind of catching up on all the pop music I had missed while I was in my jazz and classical phases as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, for, so for me, all of that just continues to swirl around. And I love listening to iTunes, like, on shuffle and, like, jumping from, you know, Messian to, to Peter Tosh is, like, amazing to me. <laughs> and so I want to do that in, in my music, too, because I feel like it's it's all right there. And I, I don't feel a, a need to be, you know, stifled into one genre. And especially when you're telling stories and when you're telling stories as, like, epic as War and Peace. I mean, you have, like, these ten main characters who are all very, very different characters. And so, like, different styles of music seem to lend themselves to their individual characters better. Yeah. I, you seem like somebody to me who sees connections between, like, wildly disparate musical genres. And I'm wondering if there was a moment, if there are moments in your life when you've been, like, I see, like, this this connecting to this in, in like, a lightning bolt, or if it's it's a little more gradual than that. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's so weird. I, um, we, I did a show last year uh, about Rachmaninoff, mm -hmm. and... Uh, there's this one lick in one of his piano concertos that is just a badass blues lick. And it's amazing. Like, he basically goes up and down like a blues scale. And I remember the, the pianist on that show, or Matias and I, like, listening to that moment and being like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I, I love listening for those things and, like, yeah, hearing, like, the, yeah, how, how reggae grooves influence EDM and things like that. And, yeah, my, my favorite artists, I think, are the ones who do, like, cross genres like that. Like, Bjork is a huge influence for me as well. Just what she does with in terms of combining pop music and, like, orchestral sounds and electronic music and, like, world music. Uh, mm. It's fascinating to mm. me. I am uh, – I kind of want to look at the other side of that, which is you said you came to the Broadway musicals through sort of an unconventional background. But what were the musicals – Broadway movie, whatever that made you say this is a, this is a form I really enjoy. Totally, um, yeah. You know, I, I was really raised on a uh, on movie musicals, <clears throat> like the classic golden era. So, The Music Man was my all time favorite. Uh, and there's <laughs> there's a scene at the end of Music Man when the band when the kids are finally playing the Minnie Martin G, and one of the fathers in the audience like stands up and goes, "Davy, that's my Davy," <laughs> and that was a big. My family would often joke make that joke about me <laughs> when I would be playing concerts. So Music Man is a huge influence, West Side Story, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, all those. And then when I was maybe 10 years old, I saw the traveling production of, of Les Mis that came mm -hmm. through Cleveland. 
And that had a pretty profound effect on me too. So Les Mis and Miss Saigon, uh, those two were really big pieces growing up. Um, yeah, and then I then I kind of like lost track. I kind of lost track of musicals for, again, while I was in these like jazz and classical snob phases. Um, yeah, so 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 those are kind of the foundation. And then like at some point, Jesus Christ Superstar got in there in a pretty serious way. So that's mm-hmm. a huge influence for me as well. And uh, and then the Nightmare Before Christmas, as far as films go, like that's a huge one for me as well. Jesus Christ Superstar and Les Mis come up a lot yeah. for composers of your generation. I'm wondering what it is about those two in particular that speaks to so many, to you at least. But, oh my God, yeah. they're just so good. Yeah, I mean, I think they're good in, in in really different ways. Like Jesus Christ Superstar, like, and for me, it's it's the original, like, you know, the original album. Um, it just doesn't sound like any other Broadway show. Like, it sounds like an amazing badass '70s rock album because that's that's just what it is, you know. Yeah. And like the orchestrations on that album, I think too, are really incredible. Like, there's some like flute duets in that that I still absolutely love. Um, and like that that show, I think is mad experimental too. Like the last couple numbers, like the crucifixion, is like still one of the most like terrifying pieces of music I know, and I love it. Um, and then Les Mis. I mean, I think Les Mis for me it was like yeah, seeing that as a kid, like seeing the live production. I just had never seen anything like that. And I remember Javert's suicide, like you know, at the original staging they did this thing where the bridge goes flying up as he has his arms in the air. And uh, I remember being really struck by that and be like, oh, you can just do that. Like you can make abstract images on the stage. Um, but yeah, then that music, I don't know what it is about that. It's just, it's just incredibly well-written melodies, you know? And yeah. And I guess there's a little bit of a rock influence in there, which I respond to for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's gorgeous. There's kind of this divide in, in composers who are writing a lot right now between people who are really trying to write shows that sound like Broadway. And I'm not trying to disparage either side, Mm -hmm. but sound like Broadway history. Like we're going to do Broadway history and three hours mm-hmm. and then people who are trying to make Broadway sound a little bit more like the year 2017 mm-hmm. and you are on this side of the equation the 2017 side of the equation and I'm wondering what do you see on the other side that you find worth emulating that you sort of uh, enjoy seeing even if it's not for you mm. um yeah I mean I mean I mean one thing I will say like I feel like it's important to for me to make music that's that it does sound like 2017, but that also like really honors the whole canon, mm-hmm. you know. So I feel myself so indebted still to you know to Rodgers and Hammerstein, and then like through them, through Sondheim, and through like Schoenberg and Bugil, um, and through you know yeah like some of my colleagues like you know F- Fun Home I think is like my favorite example of a show that I feel like you know sounds like a sounds in the in the kind of the more traditional Broadway mold, but is a you know gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful show, um, and I love that show, and I think that show like what what that show does so well is just the storytelling is mm-hmm. is impeccable. You know, the way they tell that story through that music is is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Great. One thing I think is interesting about this show and, and your work in general is that it, it, it has this incredibly emotional core and then it sort of keeps piling on layers mm-hmm. to like on top of that core to see if the core can stay intact basically. Mm-hmm. And this show at the end is very moving to me, but also along the way, you know, you're in, you're in, in the original production, you were in a literal dinner theater, mm-hmm. but now you're in like a, this giant, you know, this giant space with actors running all around you and, and, and people running through the aisles and things like that. And I'm wondering, did, was there ever a time when you felt like, okay, this is too much. We've piled too much on, mm. we've lost the core. Or have you always found that like the core of that story, the core of that emotional moment that occurs at the end of the show is mm-hmm. so strong that it, it just carries through. Yeah, I think I think it does carry through. And I think, yeah, I mean, you know, Ra- Rachel Chavkin and I have always said 
like in making the show bigger and bigger, we're actually getting closer to the source material. Like mm-hmm. it, for us, it was always for us the impossible version of the show was always the eighty nine seat Ars Nova version of the show. Mm-hmm. Like as we've gotten bigger and bigger and moved into the Imperial Theater and twelve hundred seats, we're actually able to kind of tell the story of the opulence of Tolstoy's world um, and all these things that are that are happening in it. But yeah, but for us, it was always critically important that that none of that sacrificed the emotional story. Because, yeah, the last 20 minutes of the show are the heart of the show. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the show, in some ways, it is a little bit of a, of a trick show. You know, like you see there is a lot of, like, spectacle and, and amazement, you know, in, in the in the first half. But really, at the end of it, it, all that gets stripped away because all that spectacle leads to nothing but heartache. You know, mm-hmm. like the giant fun abduction number, you know, it ends with Natasha and Maria D just screaming at each other in tears. Like, no one actually... Uh, has a good time at the end of that, of all that. Um, yeah, so for us, it's always been important to kind of, you know, maintain that that core and that heart. And obviously having Josh Groban and Danae Benton, like the two of them just kill that final scene between the two of them, where it's all just stripped down to just a solo piano. Mm. And um, yeah, and the audiences seem to, to, to be going on that journey with us. Mm. You know, when, mm. when you get to that last song, the audiences are very, very hushed and still, and there's a lot of crying going on, and it feels very good. Yes, uh, uh, the first time I saw this, I saw it with Tay Diggs, and he was oh. we, he was weeping openly <laughs> oh. at the end of the show. I was oh, like, "There's Tay good. Diggs, and he's yeah. crying very hard." <laughs> um, uh, but I, I guess, um, sort of pivoting off of that, that's really true to the original novel because the novel, in a lot of ways, is about here's this opulent society, here's this decadent society mm. in some ways, and here is like what it's ignoring here is basically the, exactly. the, the, the soul it's trying to set aside. Uh, and, and what, what is, how did you sort of translate that into the show itself? Mm-hmm. Cause I think you've done a really great job. Of oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the novel and the show both really do it structurally too. You know, the novel will have a chapter that is just a war chapter and it's like these incredible descriptions of like this war happening on the battlefield, or there'll be a chapter that is just a description of the most opulent opera you know, in, in Moscow society. But then the very next chapter will just be a conversation, you know, just a small conversation between like Natasha and Sonia. They're up late, you know, thinking about philosophy and looking at the moon. And so there's that sense of scale in the novel, um, which, yeah, which we've tried to replicate in the Broadway show too. So we have these big, gigantic production numbers that has the entire ensemble running around. But then we have these moments that are just stripped down to, you know, like Sonia's song is just her singing, you know, under a single light bulb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also, you know, the, the comet at the end is another example of that, just kind of trying to, to strip things down to their, their simplest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I am always sort of fascinated by hearing a composer speak about like musical motifs or mm. musical ideas that carry through to characters. Um, and you, as you said, have 10 characters that mm-hmm. need their own themes, their own ideas that sort of carry them through the show. Uh, I'm wondering how you develop those and like what what was a moment you had when you were like, OK, this this goes with this character. This works for this character. Totally, yeah, there was a very, very clear moment of that. Um, When I started writing the show and I always write kind of in two places, I write both at the piano and on my laptop. And so the laptop stuff will be obviously the way more electronic beat driven mm-hmm. stuff. Um. And as I was writing, I got, you know, maybe like 12 or so songs in, and I realized that almost all of Anatole's songs had a really strong electronic element to it. And especially his entrance had this huge electronic element to it. 
And then I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Like, that's actually dramaturgically justified, you know, and that he is literally electrifying Natasha. Like, he's, like, awakening her uh, sexually. And so when I, like, made that discovery, there actually had been some electronic beats in some earlier songs. But then I was like, oh, no, these need to go away. Like, these need to get reserved exclusively for Anatole. So now Anatole really introduces electronica into the score. And he also takes it out, too. So Mm -hmm. the last big electronic song is the big fight between he and Pierre. And then as he leaves, there's, like, a trail of electronic stuff. Stuff, which is like his kind of the the damage that he's wrought, which plays under when Sonia is singing about Natasha's suicide attempt mm-hmm. because, you know, he is the cause of this suicide attempt. And then that music slowly fades away as Pierre kind of enters Natasha's life. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I guess we talked, you know, we sort of have looked at all these big ideas that you've worked on and had. Where do you start? Like, what is point A for you once you've had that idea and you want to, you know you want to pursue it? Like, well, what, what's point A and how do you take those first steps from there? I mean, point A is always the, the text, you know, the source material. Um, for both Moby Dick and for War and Peace, like, I literally started with a Word document. Um, so with War and Peace, it was like a, you know, a 70-page Word document. With Moby Dick, it's just like a 600-page <laughs> Word document. You know, because and I, and I tend to, I really like things that are old and so they're free and in the public domain. So I can just, you know, I go to Gutenberg, um, the website, and, and can just copy the whole thing. And yeah, then just like kind of, it's really a matter of then editing. It's really a matter of whittling away. Okay, I've got this 70 page section. Now, what is essential to the the core story? You know, what characters are essential? What characters can I get rid of? What chapters are essential? What moments are essential? And then kind of creating an outline from that, like a base, the basic skeletal structure of where, what are the big moments? What are the big songs? You know, making sure everyone has a song, that the right, the right number of duets and trios and ensemble pieces are all there. Um, so I very much start super structurally. I'm very, and I'm like very OCD. Like my outlines are meticulously numbered and have subsections and everything. Like, you know, Comet actually ha- is broken into chapters and parts that no one really knows about because it's just like in the, it's just in the script. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So kind of having that frame is essential to me. And then I just start diving in and just writing the music uh, mm-hmm. kind of wherever I feel the impulse to start. Are you someone who is like knows a bad idea as soon as as soon as you think of it, or do you sometimes pursue those rabbit trails? Oh no, no, you gotta pursue the bad ideas. <laughs> well, what's a bad idea that turned into a good idea then? Oh God, um, huh? That's a good question. Uh, well, I mean, I think maybe the um, the horse hooves in Balaga. When I first did that, I was like, this is so stupid. So in, in, in the song Balaga, which is about this Troika driver, the, the electronic beat for that is made up of actual literal horse hooves. Oh, wow. um, I mean, I, I actually think I think they, I actually and so that's true. I think at first they were literal horse hooves, but then that sample was just a little too messy. So it ended up being replaced with like samples of wood blocks. Mm-hmm. But it still sounds like horse hooves. And when I was first making that, I'm like, this is so stupid to have this song about a horse, you know, a Troika driver have actually have horse hooves all through. And it just goes the entire song. Um but then, yeah, when I brought it, and then, and this is where a place where like I feel like collaboration is so important, and like allowing yourself to like have collaborators that you trust enough that you can be super vulnerable in front of, that you can like show them, here's the most stupid, terrible idea I've ever had. Can you guys try this mm-hmm. and, and tell me how to make it better? Um, and so yeah, so I brought that into rehearsal, you know, with with Rachel and with our our workshop cast, and and then they all loved it. So I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe this isn't a bad idea. And so then it went from there. Obviously, War and Peace, you took a, a snippet of it, and you mentioned that you're trying to do all of Moby Dick. And, Aye. like, what is 
what does that even look like? Is your apartment just like covered in like photos of ambergris? Is that, is that what it's like? Sure. Yeah. No, I, there's a lot of note cards. Yeah. I have, at one point I had a note card for every chapter. And it was just like putting them in piles of necessary, not necessary. Um, I mean, with Moby Dick, like kind of the challenge of Moby Dick, I think, is I feel like most adaptations of Moby Dick center on the story of Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. And the story, while it's a good it's a good tale, like that's actually not what makes Moby Dick an amazing novel, I don't think. You know, the story is pretty simple. Like a guy goes and hunts for a whale and the whale kills everyone. Um, but what makes Moby Dick amazing is like all the digressions that he that Melville goes on. And you know, Moby Dick is such a container for like all of American history at that at that moment and like the American ideal. Um, and just all these amazing chapters about whaling, you know, about like paintings of whales and books about whales and the whale is a dish and all. And he like goes into such meticulous detail about how the whale is dismembered. Um, so we're really trying to actually include all of that in the show to make mm -hmm. the show really a, a representation of the entire novel of Moby Dick as opposed to just the story of Moby Dick, which is, again, is similar to what I did with, with Tolstoy, too, about wanting to keep his voice on stage. So with this, similarly, there's a lot of word for word Melville in the, in the Moby Dick as well. There are a lot of really great novels. Moby Dick is one. Um, uh, War and Peace, weirdly, there's been a number of good adaptations. Of, yeah. But, but yeah, Moby yeah. Dick is one that's really struggled to be adapted. I think of like The Great Gatsby. It's mm -hmm. a book that has just never had a really good adaptation. What do you think makes a novel a good source for adaptation and sort of what are the, what are the typical uh, roadblocks you see that people get hung up on? Mm. I mean, I would say I think the, the greatest – Adaptation of Gatsby, I'd say, is Elevator Repair Services. Gats, did you did you see that Ooh, show? No. It was an amazing. It's a uh, you know Elevator Repair Elevator Repair Services, an amazing theater company here in New York. They've been around for like twenty years, and they did a production of that show, which is they literally read every single word of The Great Gatsby on stage, oh, wow. and it started with just a guy like in an office finding that book, and it's kind of this like depressing office scene, and he just starts reading this book at his desk, and slowly all of his you know colleagues start enacting the book, and the show is like six hours long. And it's mm. like this epic event that you go to and you, uh, you know, you have dinner with the audience. And by the end of it, you know, everyone is like reading parts, passages of the book. And there's this beautiful moment at the end where the lead actor just just stops actually reading and just like starts just reciting from memory. Mm -hmm. um, so I think like what and I think what that does and what I'm trying to do with with Melville and Tolstoy, too, is like is just having such a reverence for the source material, like it just having such a love for these authors writing. And again, not just for the story, not just for the tale. And I think that's the the thing that people get stuck on. Like some tales are just really great tales. And of course you can adapt them and because they're great tales. And I think actually, I mean, War and Peace has some of that, you know, there mm -hmm. are some great tales in there. But other novels, it's not just about the tale. It is about the telling. And mm -hmm. so I think that when an adaptation ignores that, that's where you can kind of run into trouble. And I think that is what most adaptations of Moby Dick have done. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the Gregory Peck one is still my favorite, which yeah. is like one of the, the oldest one, ones. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other ones, like they just, yeah, they, 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 uh, they often like invent a lot of like new things to throw in there for no real good reason. And yeah, there's a lot of pratfalls. <laughs> well, if you have a reverence there, how do you know what to cut? Because not everything is going to work in every format. And, and sometimes knowing what to cut is more important than knowing what to keep. Strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Kill your darlings. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I, that's definitely like a hurdle I've kind of I think I've I think I've mostly overcome it as an artist, um, just realizing that no matter how beautiful a single moment might be or how perfect a single moment might be, like you have to be looking at the overall architecture of the show. Like you have to be looking at the experience of sitting down at minute one and like where does the person end at, you know, the end of two hours of of show and just 
being able to detect, well, what is not essential in that specific two-hour journey. Yeah. Um, so, like, when we moved to Broadway, like, one of the biggest heartaches, we cut a Natasha song. We cut Natasha Lost, which is this gorgeous song that she sings, you know, right after uh, she has this first encounter at the opera with Anatole. And, you know, Danae sang it beautifully, and it was gorgeous, and we had it in, in Broadway previews. But we were also in Broadway previews. We were, like, noticing, like, Act 1 just felt long. Like, mm -hmm. it just felt like... And it wasn't that any individual moment was bad or long. It's just, like, cumulatively, it was just, like, too much to take in. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, I think, like, Rachel at, at one of our dinner breaks was like, you know, I really think we should think about, like, trimming that song, maybe cutting half of it. And then I was just like, let's just cut it. Let's just try cutting it. And we were all terrified. And, like, when we talked to – and then this is the most amazing Danae story because then we, like, very delicately go to Danae. And, like, if we're about to cut a big song of hers. And, like, you know, we're like, Danae, you're singing it beautifully. It's gorgeous. And we just – you know, we've been looking at the show. And Danae's just like – Oh, yeah, I can tell people are getting bored that during that. Yeah, let's cut it. <laughs> Janae was just so, like, you know, because as an actor, she knew too. And it wasn't her performance. It wasn't the song. It was just like at that moment in the show, we, we didn't need to hear from Natasha at that moment. So, mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's just about keeping your eyes on the large, the global picture. It sounds like you're really willing to experiment and really willing to play around with those things. And a lot of people get very defensive about mm. that stuff. How did you... I think most people start in that place where as artists, they're like, I'm, I'm defensive of this part. I'm never going to cut it. Sure. <laughs> How did you move past that impulse in yourself to get to this point where you're like, sure. okay, let's try it. Oh God. I wish I, I wish my director was here. She would tell you <laughs> <laughs> how good I am at that. Um, I try, I mean, I try, yeah, I try so, so hard to resist my initial, my initial impulse is always that my initial, whenever I get a note, my initial impulse is your note is wrong. Um, and no, we're keeping this. So what I've learned for myself is very important for me is to just not respond immediately. Mm -hmm. If I just don't respond, if I just listen, um, because if I respond, because as soon as you say something, then it like crystallizes into like, oh, now this is like the fight that's being had. And so it's better for me to just listen to something, absorb it. And this can be frustrating for my colleagues, I think, because they want to discuss it immediately. And I would rather just listen and then go home and sleep on it and then maybe sleep on it for another day. You know, like it really sometimes takes me, you know, weeks for a note to really sink in. Mm -hmm. But like once I get the note, then I'll be watching for that note every single time I watch it. So it's a valuable thing. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's the the, the thing I've learned the best is to know not to argue too soon, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of hold the argument off until you've had a chance to fully ingest the note and see it enough times. And then sometimes, you know, I will be like, no, like I've watched this moment for a week now and this is why this is right. And then I can have a conversation and it tends to go much better yeah <laughs> um uh, one of the I, obviously a lot of people listening to this will not have seen the original production of mm. the show but you were in that original production and then there was a, a different actor for a while mm -hmm. uh, uh, off broadway and now it's josh groban uh and it was announced that you're going to come back to the show for a yes. couple of weeks or something. Uh, and uh, you have written Josh Groban a song that is a very Josh Groban song. <laughs> Does that terrify you a little bit having to sort of hit that song? Uh, a little, a little tiny bit. I mean, I will say like I, I definitely wrote that song. I wrote that song singing it myself. So like there is a demo of that song, which is me, you know, <laughs> so I can like physically hit all the notes. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, I think, I'm terrified of that song more from an acting perspective than from a singing perspective, which is also how Josh felt about it. I mean, you know, obviously he sings it incredibly and I'm never going to match his quality of voice. Like I'll bring a different, you know, gritty rock and roll roughness to it. Um, but as an acting challenge, that song is just an enormous journey. It's like mm -hmm. a seven minute, you know, roller coaster of thought. So 
that'll be the the big thing with that working with Rachel on that. Mm. The casting of the show has always been so diverse, mm-hmm. and that's uh, an interesting thing for a story that is you know based on a classic Russian novel. Was that a conscious choice, or did it just sort of happen? Uh, it was a super conscious choice. Yeah, I think you know our very first workshop we did. Um, Rachel and I had just kind of like just just kind of asked a bunch of our friends that we had and people we knew that would be able to kind of do it really quickly. And we did that. And that first workshop was all, an all white cast. Mm-hmm. And we kind of looked at this all white cast. And I had some, you know, friends who had came and, and given notes on the thing. And they were like, yeah, I really noticed you had a really all white cast. <laughs> and like <laughs> thinking about we're like telling the story about, you know, Tolstoy's War and Peace. And like one of the things that's amazing about War and Peace is War and Peace tells the story of all of Russia, mm-hmm. that it's like the peasants in Russia, it's the aristocracy of Russia, it's the czar, it's the Troy driver that all of Russia is there. And so when we're telling that story in, you know, 20, you know, 2000, 21st century New York, like our story wants to be 21st century New York telling the story. And so that wants to be a diverse New York. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it was so like after that first workshop and then, you know, Rachel and I were both like white theater artists and, you know, we we're, we take up a lot of space. And so, you know, I, and so it just feels important to us to be, you know, you know moving that, that conversation in the right direction and kind of always maintaining a cast that is super, super diverse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we've steered away from like we have never made – we've never said, oh, Natasha has to be black or, you know, uh, Helene has to be black or you know, anything like that. It's always just we want to have a diverse cast. Um, so I think any character could be a white a white actor or an actor of color, uh, just so long as, like, you know, you see a large number of of people mm. on stage, a large number of diverse people on stage celebrating the story together. Mm. Yeah. This show's been around for a long time. Uh, has, well, not a long time, since 2012. In, in the geologic span of time, it's mm. been a blip. <laughs> yes. But you've been working on it for a while. Taking it to Broadway, what was, what was the big surprise for you about moving a show to Broadway, about scaling it up like that? Like, what was a thing you didn't ever think was going to be something you had to think about that you ended up having to think about? Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the biggest surprise actually has been how how close we've been able to stay to the original, to mm-hmm. the to the original tiny production in the 80, you know, the 87-seat theater, um, maintaining that intimacy. And, you know, so much of that credit goes to our set designer, Mimi Leon. And I think that's the thing. I just didn't believe we would actually be able to do it the way that we have done it in that we've just shattered through the proscenium. And so we are in a proscenium theater, and yet action is happening all around the theater. So there's staircases up to the mezzanine that actors run up and down. There's ramps within the audience that people dance on and do kick lines on. Um, So kind of maintaining that, that every person in the audience is going to have, you know, several moments of looking at an actor directly in the eye and having a one-on-one connection to them. Um, the fact that we've been able to maintain that, that has been such a gift and such a surprise. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's something we, we never wanted to compromise on. Like, we, we, this show could exist as a proscenium-only show. Like, the storytelling could certainly do that. But that just wasn't our show. That wasn't the show that Rachel, Mimi, and I created and this cast created. So we always wanted to hold on to that. And, mm-hmm. and we have, which is nice. With this, you've adapted sort of what is considered the great Russian novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moby Dick is one of the handful of great American novels. What have you learned about Russia and what have you learned about America from reading those books over and over again? Mm. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, America is just so weird, right? Because <laughs> just there's just nothing else like it in terms of like how young it is mm-hmm. and how how bloody its history is and how, yeah, just so much conflict. I mean, like Russia, Russia's history goes back, you know, millennia. Like you can't even... Mm-hmm find the beginning of Russian history. It goes back so, so far. So there's like this deeply entrenched Russian spirit. Um, 
Whereas I feel like the American spirit is so much more difficult to to, to hold on to because there's so many different definitions of it. Um, and Moby Dick certainly plays with that a lot. Like Moby Dick, you know, Melville talks about the Pequod being this kind of utopian vision of what America could be with all these like diverse people and all these different cultures kind of c- combining together to do this impossible task, you know, of killing killing whales. Um, and that's kind of what his vision of America was. But obviously on the Pequod still, like, you know, the captain and all the first mates are still white and the harpooners are the, you know, the the, the token uh, ethnic people on, on the boat. So we're trying to kind of, again, tell the story of Moby Dick through 21st century eyes. So uh, that show also has an extremely diverse cast where Ahab, is, Ahab and Melville are actually the only two white men on stage and, and everyone else is a super, super racially and gender diverse cast. Mm. Um, again, to kind of tell the story of what is America today, which is... You know, this, this, I mean, not even a melting pot, but just a giant stew of everything and every kind of person all trying to cohabitate together, which I don't, yeah, you don't really get that in Russia as far as, I mean, as, on, a such, on a, such a deep and uh, disparate level as we do in America. You talked earlier about what you really found to, you liked about Tolstoy from reading and researching him. Obviously, you're earlier in this, but what have you learned about Melville that you, you like? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, one thing about Melville, I'll say, and, and this might be, it, it's difficult because Tolstoy have only experienced in translation. Um, but with Melville, like his love of words, like his love of the English language, it's just, it's just absurd. I mean, you just open any page in that novel and just like point at a sentence at random and it's just like dripping in just like the most juicy and interesting and esoteric adjectives and nouns. And so that like love of language, and obviously he was reading, you know, Shakespeare, like it's very much he, him him responding to Shakespeare. Um, so that love of language is a huge thing. And then, yeah, I guess with both of them, but with Melville maybe even a little more so, like this kind of... Uh, kind of atheist, atheist struggling with God or what? What is God or what is the, you know? In, in Moby Dick, he constantly talks about the 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 whale is just a mask and there's something behind the mask. Some intelligence must be behind the mask that moves the whale. And if this intelligence is moving the whale, well, then is that intelligence moving me as well? Mm-hmm. Like the sun doesn't just move by itself. Like does Ahab move by himself? And so that kind of wrestling with with God and wrestling with you know uh, free will and determinism, I find super super fascinating from mm-hmm. Melville. And it's also putting Melville you know in the 19th century, like where he is looking at America, like combining all those things together is is pretty amazing. So many of those 19th century books are about that that wrestle with God, that wrestle with the idea of can man have free will if yeah. God exists. What attracts you to that idea? Yeah, it's so strange because I'm I'm pretty agnostic uh, ultimately. I mean, I, I'm not atheist just because I find atheists to be really annoying. Um, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I find in general like religious and spiritual things more beautiful than atheist, atheist things. But like on a purely logical level, like, yeah, the, the religious argument uh, just seems to crumble for me. So... So I guess, like, for me, I'm just fascinated in those things because of my own, the 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 paradox in my own worldview where mm-hmm. I, you know, don't intellectually believe in a god, but yet on an aesthetic level really, really love a religious <laughs> and a god-based universe. Um, yeah, and then, like, as far as, like, free will and determinism, like, for me, that just gets into, like, crazy quantum theory, like, multiple universe stuff. I love the idea that there's actually just an infinite number of parallel worlds, that mm-hmm. there is no... 
uh, that, that every choice does happen. You know, <laughs> that every time if I decide to drink this coffee right now, then I just create another universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea is pretty exciting to me, which mm-hmm. kind of eliminates the whole concept of free will versus determinism. The answer is, well, neither matters because everything happens. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you find uh, beautiful about about the idea of, of wrestling with God? Because I definitely find religious art, art strongly motivated by religion, compelling even though I myself often struggle with that mm-hmm. idea in my own head. So what, what, what draws you to that? What, what do you find um, compelling about that? that uh, what do you find beautiful about religion and art, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I guess like <clears throat> when, when you, like, you strip away all the, the dogma and the, the like terrible histories and <laughs> you know, the terrible things that come with religion, like all religion is is just like trying to help people understand how to deal with the world and like how to interact with other people. Like I, I find like – like a Christian philosophy, like the actual philosophy of Jesus Christ to be like so profound and and crazy. And like just that really, um, you know, really aggressive, like turn the other cheek kind of pacifist um, outlook. I I just find it's it's such an impressive uh, idea on how to live, that you could live this way, that you could actually – you know, stifle the rage that you sometimes feel towards other people and and the hatred and the desire to do revenge and violence, that you can actually repress that and that maybe a more beautiful way of living comes out of that, Mm. uh, I find pretty fascinating. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, it's the it's the ideas at the heart of it, like the story and like the bells and whistles and the rituals, like all that is, you know, absurd. And sometimes I find it, you know, beautiful and purely aesthetic. Uh, grounds the same way that I find like a Chopin nocturne beautiful for no religious reasons really. Um, but for me, yeah, the core, the, I, mean, I guess I treat religion as philosophy more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So we talked about where you decide to start and how you begin writing. How do you know when you found your ending? Uh, obviously when you're adapting, it's a little different. Like we know mo- how Moby <laughs> Dick ends, but how do you know when you found the perfect way to end one of these? Mm, there is no end. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm actually, we're, uh, we're mixing the Comet album right now. Mm-hmm. And I was just listening to, yeah, like with the end of one of the songs. And I'm like, oh God, that drum beat there is so bad. Like I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to change that. <laughs> so I think I actually might change one of the drum beats, you know, just for the cast album because, because I'm just never... Never done. And that's one of the reasons I love, like, I've chosen theater as my art form. Like, I love that element of it, that it's kind of this constantly evolving, changing thing. And, um, you know, when you go to the show, if I haven't seen the show for a month and I come back to it, like, the actors have all gone off on new tangents. And, like, the show is just a constantly evolving beast. So it never ends. Mm. It just never ends, um, which which I love. Mm. And I feel like it's just so funny thinking about that versus, like, you know, when George Lucas goes in and changes the Star Wars films. It's like, films don't change. You yeah. can't change films. You know, <laughs> those are done. Um, so, you know, he should have been a theater artist. He might have enjoyed himself <laughs> way more. Uh, talk, talking about movies, like, do you see a version of this that, that could work as a film? And and what have you taken from film? Like you mentioned watching movie musicals as mm. a child. Like, what did you learn from that that you've, you've brought to your own uh, theater career? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I would love to see Great Comet as a, as a film, for sure. Um, I think there's just, yeah, there's, I mean, I think you would obviously lose the, You'd have to really take a different take on it. I don't think you would want to try to replicate the immersive theatrical experience on film. Mm-hmm. You'd really want to – I mean, I think it could work, you know, in the way that, like, you know, BBC's War and Peace work, like, with that kind of opulence and those kind of amazing sets and, mm-hmm. and costumes. Um, I would love to see that. 
Um, but I think, yeah, for movie musicals, I mean, what I've learned, I, I, I just think movie musicals are some of the weirdest movies around. You know, <laughs> they're just so, so strange. Like, especially, like, some of the seven, like, Tommy was a huge influence on me. And Tommy is the most profoundly strange movie. <laughs> and then it's just, like, these music videos. And a music, when you're watching a music video, like, you're your relationship to image is just very, very different, very, very non-literal. Like, you can watch really strange, abstract scenes going on, or, like, you know, Beyonce's um, music video albums, I think, are incredible. (laughs) And they're just these just outrageous, like, costumes and situations and dancers just doing these things, but you just accept it. Like, you are not trying to tell a linear narrative, you know, out of those images. You're just, like, letting your eyes have the same kind of visceral response to it that your ears are having to the music, which is a very non-narrative, you know, mm-hmm. thing. It's just like, ah, it's just like image, emotion, you know, uh, spectacle, senses. Mm. So I love that, like that that kind of, um, and I feel like that would lend itself really well to to great comet too, to have some of the the more kind of abstract image storytelling mm. in it. Yeah. We've talked, we talked about your um, uh, musical and literary tastes. I'm wondering, do you you watch a lot of films? Do you watch television? Or are there other media that you're interested in just purely like, I watch this to turn my brain off, you know? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I binge watch a lot of a lot of uh, fantasy and sci-fi TV shows. That's kind of been my my bag for the last few years. Um, actually, my wife and I are watching The Americans right now, which okay. is incredible. <laughs> it's so good. And we've been watching, uh, I just kind of finished Orphan Black and Stranger Things was a big one. I've also been working through Buffy the Vampire Slayer, finally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of my my guilty pleasures. I go to those. And they're not even guilty pleasures because, like, they're amazing. <laughs> and yeah. I usually feel like... Yeah, and obviously, like, things like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, like, that kind of epic storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, I'm super, super drawn to. Mm. Um, and it's something that, yeah, it's I'm, I'm really drawn to it. You can't really do that in a theater piece. I mean, a theater piece is, by its nature, you know, one or two hours long. Um, mm-hmm. But I love the kind of storytelling you can do in long-form TV that can last, you know, seven years. You can watch a character evolve over hundreds of hours. Um, yeah, so I, I'm pretty fascinated by that. This idea of, of epic I guess almost finding the intimate in the epic seems mm. to uh, animate a lot of your work and a lot of your interests. What, what do you see as those two poles? What's worth keeping about what's huge in art and what's very small and human in art? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that just feels like the human experience, right? And, like, I've been thinking about this a lot, like, in our current climate, like, watching what's going on, like, politically, like, what's going on in this epic global scale, global scale and, like, these crazy things that seem to be happening in our world. But then, like, when you zero in and, like, look at, like, the people involved and, like, the individuals involved and, like, try to get inside of their heads, like, what's going on? Like, I just, I just, like, yeah, I just get obsessed thinking about, like, what, what are the Trumps, like, talking about in, in bed? Like, at night, you know, like, what, what, you know, what, what are they talking about over breakfast? Like, that has nothing to do with politics. Like, I love speculating on that. And then for my own life, too, it's like all this global stuff is going on. But then at the end of the day, I'm still just an individual and I have my friends and my wife and my colleagues. And like we have these one on one tiny relationships, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so I think for me, both in the art and in the life, it's like a matter of balancing those two things of like knowing where you are globally and like what's going on on the epic scale. But then also knowing that like the the true most meaningful and like loving and beautiful moments will be on these one-on-one very small mm. levels, you know, mm. which is again, what it comes back to Natasha and Pierre at the end of, of Comet is like this epic tale. But at the end of it, what's really important 
Um, and, you know, and this actually goes back to Tolstoy, too. Like, Tolstoy has this theory of history that there are no great men. Like, history is just, like, this giant wave of things that is happening that will inevitably happen. And, like, Napoleon just happened to be the guy around at that time. But he's not a great man. He's just, like, caught in the wave of history, which is a line from the show. Mm. Um, so I love, like, that image, for sure. Do you, do you buy that idea that none of us is, is great? We're all just caught by history? kind of do actually yeah i mean i mean like great is such a weird word it yeah. can be defined in so many different ways yeah. um but i do i mean like that that like that sense of and like it, it's good for me like thinking about trump like it, it's not like trump is just the guy who was in the right place at the right time and like mm -hmm. you know he has his charisma and his charm and like he was able to do it but if he wasn't there someone else would have been you know and so it's it's comforting for me to to think of that philosophy and know, yeah, he's, there are no great men. He's just this person who was just like in in that situation at that time. And someone else would have been like, it's like that's important to you. Like someone else would have done it if it wasn't him, you know, because mm -hmm. there's just this conflict going on in America that's bubbling to the surface that like has to be addressed in some way. Mm -hmm. And like we're just dealing with it in this very peculiar and odd <laughs> with this very peculiar, odd person. Um, but it would have happened in one way or another. As you know, people write a lot about New York, L.A., coastal bubble, mm. whatever, all coastal elites. And you uh, write for Broadway, which is, you know, a very coastal. I, literally yeah, only yeah. exists in New York. <laughs> yes. How do you see your role in like sort of reaching out to that other side of America? I mean, that's been so heavily on my mind, like obviously in the last year. And, um, you know, I'm so inspired. Like I know Lynn Nottage's Sweat is coming to Broadway soon, which is a show where she went to like the, you know, the, I think it was in. Pennsylvania, I think, but like one of the poorest towns in America and just like sat with people and talked to people and just like wanted to tell their stories. And so that's certainly like looking forward at like the next pieces I'm making. Um, I mean, Moby Dick addresses some of that, honestly, in mm -hmm. terms of looking at like the racial scope of America and what, um, you know, what, what people are experiencing. Um, but we've been talking to like um, actually Sherwood Anderson's uh, Winesburg, Ohio is a book I've always loved. And like thinking about that, just like going into small town America. And, you know, I grew up in, you know, not so small town, but in Lakewood, Ohio. So I definitely grew up in the Midwest. And um, yeah, I think it's important for us as like, as you say, cultural elites to get out of that bubble, you know, and to like go into the world and see what people are really talking about mm. and what people are really experiencing, what people are really feeling. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I end every week with a handful of the same questions. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, and I guess I, I, I want to start with what's like the last thing, last work of art you had nothing to do with that you consumed, whether it was like a song on the way in or an episode of TV you watched last night. And, and then what did you think of it? Oh, literally the last one. Literally the last one. The oh. most recent. Yep. Uh well, I was just I was just like re-listening to um the Bon Iver's new mm. one on the mm -hmm. subway over here. Mm. It's so good, <laughs> <laughs> and like that's an album that yeah just like just cr destroys any kind of barrier in, in genre. Like mm -hmm. it's just I don't know what to call that album. It's just like so insane in terms of how he's dealing with like his kind of indie folk roots, but then like crazy electronica and crazy experimental noise. Um, and abstract forms, like I, I just, I just adore that piece. So mm. yeah, that that's been a piece that's on heavy rotation for the last, you know, since it came out. I guess mm. what, like six months ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's something you're uh, looking forward to? Uh, generally pop cultural, but maybe it's something else. 
Well, I'm looking forward to Logan. Uh, <laughs> I'm very looking forward to that. I'm a big X-Men junkie. And, uh, oh, great. Yeah, the, the ads for that look pretty exciting. It's excellent. Yeah. I will tell you that. Yeah. It's, it's oh, great. good, good, good. It's great. I'm super looking forward to um, the Joan of Arc show at the public as well. Okay. Joe Lambert is a, is a person uh, and a performer I've worked with a few times, and she's incredible. And so I just cannot wait to see her mm. rip the stage up playing mm. Joan of Arc, which mm. it's a musical with uh, it's David Byrne and Alex Timbers. Mm. Yeah, mm. very excited. Um, what's a what's a really bad pop culture outing? Whether it's like a movie date or you took your family to see something and it just ended disastrously, like a, like a terrible pop culture outing you've had. A terrible one. Um, oh yeah, well, it wasn't terrible. I mean, nothing's really been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I made the mistake of of, of visiting uh, medieval times twice. <laughs> So that was kind of, we went, I'd never been, like as a kid, it just was not around. So I I had no idea about it. So we went, just the two of us together, maybe four years ago, we were actually doing a piece about wizards. Um, So we went to Medieval Times and had a great time. And it was just so absurd and ridiculous. And watching, you know, the jousters and drinking the gigantic blue drinks. (laughs) And so then like four years later, we like got a group of friends together. Like, oh my God, we've got to go do this. And we wore costumes. And then the second time, it's just not. (laughs) You're just like, the novelty wars off on that very quickly. Only go to Medieval Times once. Only once. That's advice. Yeah. And finally, we've talked about War and Peace. We've talked about Moby Dick. So you you may not have a different answer to this question, but I always like to ask everybody, what is, you can interpret this any way you want, the greatest work of art you've ever encountered, uh, and what have you taken from that? The greatest work of art. You can take it as something I just return to all the time, something I got like real yeah. profundity from, something like that. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, we could be here all day. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, the the... Oh, God, there's so many. For some reason, Neil Gaiman's Sandman is honestly the first thing that popped into my head, um, mm-hmm. that graphic novel. And I feel like that does so many things that I'm interested in doing in terms of, again, colliding genres together. Like that piece, how he just takes every piece of mythology and just smashes them together. And, you know, you have Lucifer and you have Greek gods and you have, uh, you know, uh, Loki. You know, just everyone is kind of in this world together. And then the art is beautiful. Like I love also the yeah, storytelling that works in like many forms at once. So the graphic novel is is a huge comic books are a, a huge love of mine. So yeah, I would say that's a that's a pretty big one for me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dave Malloy, for dropping by. And uh, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of eighteen twelve is currently on Broadway. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. And in case you haven't guessed, that's me. Here are some closing credits for you. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. The logo for the show is designed by Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production is provided by P3 Post. And this week's episode was recorded in the lovely Vox Podcasting Studio in New York City. We'll be back next week with another great figure from the world of arts and entertainment who I think is pretty interesting. But until then, don't forget to turn left.